all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. Kind folks finish first. This is an adage I sincerely hope is true. It's also the title of entrepreneur Sam Jacobs' book, as well as how he leads his organization, Pavilion. An experienced revenue leader, Sam has come to believe that the best way to grow a business is by playing the long game, not by optimizing for short-term gains. This approach aligns well with what I've seen work at the best subscription-based businesses. It also lets us sleep well at night. Sam created Pavilion to educate and inspire sales and marketing leaders, as well as entrepreneurs, on how to build sustainable growth. Today, over 10,000 people pay to be part of the Pavilion community. In our wide-ranging conversation, Sam and I talk about why it pays to focus on the long-term, even though most revenue leaders are compensated on short-term goals, when to go with your gut and when to use data to make key decisions, and how a global organization can build local community. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robbie. I'm excited to be here. So you wrote Kind Folks Finish First, and it really describes a different way of doing business. It's about you know, relationships, not transactions. It's about giving before you ask and not trying to chisel out the last pennies. It's really about the long game. So it resonated a lot with me. And I'm curious where were you in your entrepreneurial journey when you wrote Kind Folks and what prompted you to write it? Well, I wrote it over the course of really the summer of 2021. And where I was, was, you know, the book starts in 2017 on Friday the 13th. But my background is really as a sales leader and a revenue leader at high growth companies in New York City for the last 20 years. And, you know, from one perspective and from one lens, the first 15 years before I started my current company were in some ways, although I talk about this in the book, in some ways they were sort of rife with failure and disappointment in the sense that I hadn't achieved the things that I'd hoped to achieve and I didn't feel like I was professionally successful. And things started to take a turn really about six years ago when I began and launched a consulting business when I was fired for the second to last time from my second to last full-time job. And when I really began to work on Pavilion, which is the company that I run full-time and more intensively. And the book is really about the series of, you can call them epiphanies or realizations, but it's really the codification of a series of principles that they were sort of inside of me the whole time, but I began to articulate them more eloquently, I suppose, over the course really of uh, beginning in 2017. And, you know, over COVID, it was, you know, there's probably like a, a second edition that updates it for the economic downturn and the tech recession that we're in right now. But over COVID, the company that I was running, which was Pavilion, grew very significantly. It became uh, quite successful. We raised $25 million. And uh, I had a coach, I have a coach, I'm talking to him today, actually, who said, you know, there's a lot of people that were successful in COVID. And there was a lot of people that struggled with great difficulty. And maybe this is a story about how employing some of the principles that you articulate can be inspirational to other people so that people know that there are alternative paths. The point of my book is, as you said, in the intro that 
there's a different way to do business. The point of my book is not that that's the only way to do business. And it's also not that that's the only way to be quote unquote successful or to generate wealth. My point is simply to offer an alternative path and to let people know that there are more than one ways to play this game that we're all involved in, uh, which you can call, you know, capitalism or whatever, however you want to describe it. So that's a very long-winded answer to your question, but the fundamental essence of it is that I learned to believe in these ideas over the course of achieving success with my own company over the last couple of years, and I wanted to share them with other people because I feel like I feel like to the point of the phrase and the play on the phrase that there's a belief sometimes that you have to be ruthless in order to be successful. And I think you have to be disciplined in order to be successful, but that's not quite the same thing as ruthless. And I wanted to let people know that there's a different way to do business that can still get them the things that they profess to want, like wealth, impact, long-lasting relationships with friends, security, all of those good things. Yeah, I love that. And I love the alignment of you know doing the right thing, focusing on the long-term with discipline as a path to financial and professional success. So it's not like there's two paths and one leads you to being able to sleep at night and the other one leads you to, you know, wealth and glory, but rather there's a way to integrate the two. And, you know, it really aligns with a lot of what I've seen in the world of subscriptions and membership models, because those models are explicitly designed to depend on loyalty, to depend on someone staying with you. And as a result of that, you have to play the long game if you want to succeed with, with those kinds of models. Absolutely. And yeah, and that's why you know, that's why I believe fundamentally both capitalism, you know, I always, this is a more political comment than sometimes people expect me to make, but I do think that regulated capitalism is still the most humane economic system that's been created because in the same way that subscriptions and recurring revenue businesses and membership organizations are humane, because the only way to get rich in cap in regulated capitalism, right, and monopolies and Rig systems, obviously, it's different. But in regulated capitalism, fundamentally, the reason that Jeff Bezos is so wealthy is because he created a service that provides benefit to millions and millions of people. And similarly, with the membership business, which is the business that I run, Pavilion, the only way that I can grow perpetually is to continue to find a way to deliver ongoing and meaningful value to my customers who are members of my community. And this is, you know, as we talked about in the prep for the show, probably something, Robbie, that you know more about than me, to be honest. But I'm perfectly aligned with my customers in that regard. If I continue to provide value and if I am searching for value in one of the ways that I sometimes refer to myself and the company is as a truffle pig and I'm, you know, the truffles are delight. The truffles are, I just have to stay alive long enough. I have to make sure I don't run out of money before I discover the formulas that keep people engaged, loyal, and retain them as customers for a long time. And that's, that's a good incentive. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about Pavilion, what your mission is there and what the value is that you're providing for those members? Yeah, sure. I think that it helps to set the stage a little bit. So not surprising to anybody that's listening, we live in a world of increasing uncertainty where not only is there very little job security relative to the past, and in startup land, if you're not a member, some of the stats are particularly anxiety-inducing. You know, the average tenure of a growth executive, meaning somebody leading sales or marketing at a high-growth company, meaning venture capital-backed startup, is 17 months. On average, people are lasting about a year and a half in a job. Maybe they leave. Often they get fired. Maybe something happens with the company. Maybe they get layered and they get a boss on top of them. But it's a very short duration. 
And at the same time, again, not a surprise to anybody, the world itself is changing every day. We are recording this in July of 2023. ChatGPT and generative AI, as we've all adopted it and know it, is still less than a year old, and yet it's completely upended so many industries, and we're in this massive hype cycle. And that didn't, we didn't even know that it existed prior to November of 2022. So my point is that, and that's just the most recent example, if we think back over COVID, over interest rate volatility, over all of the changes in technology, the point is that we exist in an increasingly dynamic system where the way to do your job, the tools, the skills, the resources that you need are not readily available because they're being created and updated on a daily, often by the hour or minute basis. So you're a professional that exists in that world, which is, you know, the only fundamental stability is instability. The only constant is inconsistency and where you don't have job security. So in that world, what do you do and where do you go to make sure that there's a possibility to build a meaningful and ongoing career, that over 20 years, you have confidence that you're not continually stepping in quicksand, that you're not on a merry-go-round that continually ends up back where you started, and that you're actually making progress towards a predefined goal. And that goal, of course, being, like I said, all the things that we want, some level of wealth, some level of security, some level of peace at night when we go to bed. So that is, now, that is all preamble. That is what Pavilion is intended to provide. We are a paid membership organization for go-to-market executives, and we exist to help people build and navigate their careers more effectively and more successfully. What does that actually mean? That means that sales leaders, marketing leaders, CEOs and founders, customer success leaders, people that are working on revenue generation, making companies money, they join, they pay a membership fee, and they get a bunch of stuff in return. The through line is community. The through line is human connection, connecting to other peers that have been there, done that, that are in the same state of challenge or crisis or facing the same obstacles and the ability to connect with those people in person and virtually. And then, of course, it's all of the other stuff that you build as services once you have that community in place. The main thing that we build is learning. We've built an online learning platform called Pavilion University, the purpose of which is to help train people in the very skills that we think are important where we're regularly updating the course content or updating the curriculum and bringing in new instructors. But there's also job placement. There's also access to a vendor marketplace. There's access to all kinds of services for people that are in career transition. The bottom line is long-winded answer, but again, just sort of setting the stage. Pavilion is a paid membership community for revenue executives that connects human connection with perpetual continuous learning. Got it. And how long, you know, we spent some time on the show with other guests talking about membership organizations and why people come, why they stay, why they leave. What have you learned about that? You know, kind of taking a step back and saying, you know, you run this very meaningful community for people that are living in this volatile world, leading volatile teams in the most volatile companies and giving them the sense of community and breaking education, you know, emerging education, just-in-time education. What have you learned about kind of the, how long people stay or what brings them to you? How has the model evolved over time? Well, you know, I learn something every day. I, and I think this, is, again, is something that you probably know perhaps even more about. I've learned a couple of things. One of them is that they come at inflection points oftentimes. There's specific spikes in their life. Maybe they get fired. Maybe they're interviewing for a new job. There's something when the armor comes off and the vulnerability rises and they feel like they're finally ready to ask for help. That's why they come. And that can mean a variety of different reasons. And the tip of the spear oftentimes is learning, is content. They might come because they want to, quote unquote, take CRO school, Chief Revenue Officer School, which is a 10-week program that we've designed to help prepare people 
to take on that job. So they come for an acute need and then they stay. When they stay, they stay because they feel a sense of connection and affinity and perhaps even status that is connected to the community. And so in that way, you know, the, the euphemism is come for the learning. LinkedIn was always come for the tools, stay for the network. And for us, it's come for the learning, stay for the community and stay for the human connection. And when they don't stay, because they don't always stay, it's because we were not able to deliver that sense of human connection in a meaningful or substantial enough way that they felt like it was a need that was perpetual. So, you know, again, sometimes people come in because they want to take a specific learning program and then their expectation is, I will immediately cancel my membership. And our job, our job is to debate that internally, to be honest, and figure out if we want those customers in the first place, do we want to reframe them and tell them not to sign up until they're ready to be customers for life? Or do we want to take those people that are thinking about the membership experience more transactionally and see if we can do a bit of jujitsu, if we can if we can flip their orientation and educate them that there is a need for ongoing community, that's how I think about it a little bit. Yeah, I find that really helpful. You know, the idea of people coming for one thing, but staying for another and this idea of what are the acquisition benefits, Yeah, right? I'm here to get another job and I need to, you know, brush up on my tools. But once I'm here, I can be more vulnerable and I can talk to people and I can, you know, really learn. And I find, you know, people that are like me how do you think about balancing the investment? I'm sure there's, you know, you talked about new courses, new instructors, but then there's also, as we both know, there's a lot of, a lot of effort and work that goes into community. You don't just open up the platform and people show up and have meaningful engagement and organize important and meaningful events. A ton of work. I would be being dishonest if I acted like this has been a perfect journey up and to the right for our organization. I'll tell you that we've made a big mistake over the last nine months and that we are undoing. And it's because we underappreciated the investment in community relative to the investment in learning. And so one of the keys to our success early on was that we were pretty generous with revenue shares. In some ways, Pavilion is like a multi-level marketing organization because we take local advocates and we take representatives and leaders within specific cities and we turn them into, we call them chapter heads. And we were very generous with the share of revenue that we shared with them as they grew their chapters. And what had happened last year was that our growth was slowing down and our member satisfaction was nominally declining, not significantly declining, but it wasn't where it used to be when we were a young upstart organization. And we were paying millions of dollars to those chapter heads. And so I, and this was a huge mistake. So for anybody out there listening, you know, just always remember the lessons of community and, and what actually creates a sense of personal loyalty, a sense of commitment. But the point was that I thought that people didn't need these chapter leaders to the extent that they needed them. I thought that we could do better if we did more central planning. And it was really more of a learning-based platform. People didn't really need a weekly newsletter from their local Boston representative. We could do anything that they needed, and we would create a different structure that would create still a sense of community, but in a cheaper, more efficient way. And you know, you may think that a line that's going slightly down is a bad line until you see a line that's going steeply down. And so we kind of botched this transition and we got away from our roots and we're realizing now that it was a big mistake and we're bringing chapters back and we're trying to do it in such a way that we can balance the investment. So I guess the point is, I think calling it investment is one thing. I think it's really about incentive alignment and that's what we're, you know, I've got a call tomorrow morning. It's not that they were paying them quote unquote too much money. It was that we were paying too much for gross margin and not enough for acquisition. And 
you know, too much for retention. And I don't mind paying a lot of money if they're growing the business. And so the realization that, you know, I've come to is first, again, we need to invest in community. The other thing I would say, by the way, is the key point is the incentives need to be aligned. But the second point is I made too many investments in one-to-one interactions between people that work directly for me at Pavilion and connection with members all over the world. And the better way to think about it, if I could go back in time over the last couple of years, is instead of investing in you know too many people that took calls from members all over the world, we took that money and invested it in systems infrastructure, operational support to give us better data and reporting that we could then share with our local representatives. You might think of them as franchisees, we call them chapter heads, but it would have been better to invest in empowerment and enablement of the local community than trying to build a centrally planned top-down organization. One of the ideas that I think I've really come to believe over the last couple of months is that there's a certain amount that needs to feel consistent, but there's a certain level of inconsistency that is a feature, not a bug, of having you know this federated network of people that everybody's going to feel free to innovate and create new kinds of events and new kinds of experiences. And that shouldn't be discouraged. That should be encouraged. And so we're bringing back chapters and we're not just thinking about more growth incentives, but we're, we're thinking about all kinds of things that we might be willing to let them do that previously we didn't want to let them do, like accept money for selling sponsorships so that they could pay for stuff or create local, just more of a local franchise. So long answer to your question, but that's sort of, those are some of the learnings over the last couple of months and years. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I know it's a constant battle, the centralization versus decentralization and consistency versus quirkiness, intimacy. It's hard to have intimacy with consistency. Exactly. We did this roadshow last year where we did all of this was, you know, and and we went to nine different cities and did these big events. And in so doing, that was like one of the moments I'm like, we got to get rid of these chapter heads is because I went to a bunch of cities where I'm like, who, this person is not a good representative of my community. How did this person get into a leadership position? But then I would go to other cities and the people would be amazingly representative of the best that's possible from Pavilion. And I thought that that inconsistency needed to be stamped out and we needed to be much more machine-like in how we sort of, but I think that's sort of the point. Like it would have been better instead of throwing out the entire structure and saying, we need to run this from a top-down perspective. What I should have done is said, it's okay to replace the person. Let's go replace the person in that particular city, as opposed to throwing out the entire structure. Really interesting. It's hard to know when to throw it away and start over. And when you can tinker with what you have, when the core is basically good and there's room for improvement versus kind of a rip and replace situation. Yeah. And it's, I tell this to CEOs and founders that are my peers and they say, yeah, you are on the journey. You're not going to be perfect. You're going to make mistakes. And the whole, the whole thing is to try and not make existential mistakes. And again, I think one of the key learnings that's not specific to a subscription business, but just specific to my journey as a CEO is. Sometimes you need to, you know, go fast to go slow, slow down to speed up. Like if you want to change something, let's have a program where we test the change as opposed to, you know, I have this great sense of abiding in patience and I just want to rip everything out and start over because I can't wait to get to this vision that I have in my head. And what I've had to learn this year is things are going to take a long time and it's better to slow down and be deliberate as opposed to being rash and foolhardy. Yeah. But I will say that there's a book by Marshall Goldsmith, a great book but an even greater title, which is what got you here won't get you there, which I think is often the challenge that, you know, the things, the speed and the the willingness to go fast and to throw stuff away and try again is great in the entrepreneurial phase. But as you're scaling, you know, maybe you're a little more deliberate, a little more careful about what you're doing, slow down to go fast. It's 
you know, I think people struggle with these issues all the time. And I'm very grateful that you're sharing a couple of your experiences in the trenches, because I know it'll be helpful. Lessons uh, learned the hard way. The whole point of this show, and I think, you know, maybe to some extent, part of the reason for Pavilion is to help the people coming behind us avoid the bumps in the road that we experienced. You've grown quite a bit. And, you know, you just talked about your impatience and your ability to go fast. You know, I've heard you speak before about how early on you went with your gut. And as you scaled, you realized that conviction isn't always enough. And you've moved to a, you know, go slow to go fast kind of approach, more data-driven. How do you know? I mean, I think people know this, that they should be moving slower and going with data. Sometimes you don't want to just go with your gut. But how do you decide, this time I'm going with my gut, this time I'm going back and looking at the data? Well, first of all, is there data? <laughs> so that's like one of the first vectors of decision, right? And then some notion of, is this a creative decision or is this you know, a more process or systematic decision? Pricing and packaging, that's not a gut-based decision. Now, at the very, very beginning, maybe it can be, but we kept making decisions based on price. And we're at a point where it's something that you need to test. So we finally did run a bunch of tests because we have members paying a bunch of different price points. And we saw that there's very different retention characteristics based on how much they pay. And so over time, now there's a question still about how do you, if you're charging more than you think is optimal for the current economic environment, which I will admit, I think we're a little expensive right now. How do you get to the right price point without upending the existing customer base? And that's, again, that's a thing that you plan. That's not a thing that you just have intuition about. That's a thing that you can research and you can talk to people. There are pricing experts out there. You're not the first company in the world that ever thought we need to figure out a way to lower our average price without throwing away millions of dollars of revenue. On the other hand, there are taste-based decisions like the name of the company. You know, we were called something else at the beginning and I changed the name to Pavilion. And that wasn't something that I hired a marketing agency to help me review five different options. It was really, I thought our old name was Revenue Collective. There are lots of people that still love that name, but I found it to be too inward looking to us versus them. And I wanted Pavilion at least to have the chance to be a much bigger idea. I think it's fundamentally about the ideas in the book more than really anything else. And so I was on a run. I knew that we needed a new name and, or at least I thought that we needed a new name. And I saw that name in my head and I saw the color palette, which similar to your you know, forever transaction books and your color palettes is a red-based color palette. And I saw you know, the ticker dollar sign PVLN in my head. And so I came back and that was an intuitive decision. That was not a, a data-based decision. So the answer to your question is, if it's truly creative, and I guess the last thing I would say is, and also, you know, what are the things that you're particularly good at? Do you know your superpowers? I have a podcast with my friends, AJ and Asad, and we were trying to think of a name and, you know, that we use ChatGPT and a bunch of other stuff and nothing, I, th I didn't think anything was particularly inspiring. And then, you know, I said, oh, I think the name should be Topline because it's a reference to revenue and I just think it's a catchy name. I think I was right about that. And there's also decisions that were down to your strengths. And then there's decisions where you have lots of data, where there's potentially a big impact, where that's something that you should be more deliberate about. Yeah, that's very helpful. I think people struggle with that. And my favorite part of your answer was, First, you have to have data uh, because <laughs> right. I, I, think, I think that is, you're right, that is like the first break in the decision tree is, you know, do I have a choice or, you know, because early on, I think for a lot of people listening, they're thinking, you know, I don't have a lot of data and to some extent I have to go with my gut. I think your point that when it's a decision like pricing, packaging, that's well-worn territory. There are a lot of people who've made those decisions before you and thought about them harder than you ever have. It's worthwhile to see what they've done before you make a decision. Yeah, exactly. 
And I think people also feel sometimes like their business is completely unique. And one of the reasons on this show that we have guests from, you know, different kinds of business models, you know, professional communities, software, streaming, heavy equipment, whatever, is to see that, you know, even different kinds of companies have the same issue, right? Like you said, how do we lower our prices without throwing away, you know, millions of dollars of revenue? Or how many tiers do we need? Or what's the right relationship to have with our local franchise owners or chapter heads? Those are questions that it's not the first time. hundred um, percent. I mean, I realized that when we were doing our prep call, because you studied so many of these businesses. And like you said, we're not that unique. People have been coming together in communities and seeking human connection for 10,000 years, 100,000 years. You know, animals have done it. So sometimes we think our problems are very, very special and specific. And lo and behold, they're not. Humbling. Really brings you down to earth. Humbling. Yeah, that was exactly. the word I was looking for. Yeah, exactly. What do you think is harder, acquisition or retention? I found retention to be harder. In a membership organization, retention is acquisition. That's sort of one of the key. We were bringing back chapters to help with churn. And then I realized, well, the only way you really grow is, especially, see, the only way to grow community, if you don't have any of the other stuff like learning or specific courses or certifications, the only way to grow is through word of mouth because articulating the value proposition in a kind of demand generation capacity is very hard. You know, it's pretty amorphous. Join this club. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to click on an ad when I have like an acute need probably. And I don't know when I'm ever going to really need to join a club ambiguously. Maybe it's brand advertising. Maybe it creates awareness. But what we realize is when you focus on retention, which is you make your members happy, they tell their friends because they're proud. And I think, you know, one of the things that you've said in the past, which I really just, I just wish we could lean into as an organization even more is you want to find ways of celebrating your members and bestowing status upon them and giving them recognition. And if you do those things and they become, so what is a perfect example of that? You know, our earliest growth strategy was really simple. We had everybody put the fact that they were members of Pavilion on their LinkedIn profile. And now we have, you know, 62, 63% of our total membership listing the fact that they're in Pavilion on their LinkedIn profile, which is effectively a source of our brand strength. Well, that was our demand generation strategy. It was a bunch of people saying, I'm part of this club. And when other people saw it on their page and they felt like they wanted to be part of that club too, then they signed up and they joined. So, you know, that's again, part of how we've thought about growth. The point is like, if I want people to join, then I need people to stay. And the more people leave, the less more people are going to, well, first I'm going to need more people to join to just stay where I am. The thing that accelerates growth is happy members and word of mouth in, especially in a thing like community. Yeah, that's a good answer. And follow-on question from that. Have you identified any tactics? You mentioned the one of, you know, having people post that they're members on LinkedIn. Any other techniques that help accelerate or strengthen the impact of your members? Some organizations, for example, have referral programs, sometimes with a, a prize or a reward, other times just with status or other times with nothing, or other ways of creating impetus for people to, to either make referrals or, or bring in their friends. And stuff. We have a referral program and we haven't weaponized it enough is the honest truth. It's sort of, it's adjacent. It's not core to what we're doing. And that's actually something that we're thinking about and working on quite a bit. Making referrals seamless and easy is big. Taking, again, not just like having people post, but giving people a podium and creating some kind of natural evolution where you join as a novice or a student, and eventually you become a teacher. And then the reason that you stay is to continue to give back and to teach and to have some kind of, you know, like I said, podium, some place where you can project your expertise and 
your stewardship of the brand and your service to others. So of course, that means teaching for Pavilion University, and it means celebrating our instructors and giving them speaking opportunities at our events. But all of it creates this virtuous cycle. You know, frankly, sometimes we lose track of it because we're a small organization. There's only so many things we can focus on. But yeah, I think for me, again, it comes back to like, how do you take people that are ready to lean in, that are ready to give back, and how do you raise them up so that they feel like their efforts were rewarded and they can serve as role models to other members to say, when you want to create a name for yourself, you can do so within this community and the rewards redound to your benefit. It's so important in a membership organization, the things that you're doing, it makes sense to me to recognize people. You know, I always say that, you know, you want to be like a cheers bar first time, give them a sense of belonging, being recognized, getting what they need, being welcomed and made to feel at home. And then the next thing on Maslow's hierarchy is this, you know, status, which is either being recognized for your accomplishments or being recognized for your contributions. And they're both really important in a community. And it also gives people a place to stay right? Because a reason to stay, because we love to be helped, but even more, we love to help. It yeah. makes us feel really good to, you know, like I find, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of calling someone and asking them for help and saying, you know, I just need 15 minutes. I just want to pick your brain on this one thing. And then they end up being the one who stays longer because it's so fun to be helpful. That's the uh, whole point like, of my book. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the, the point of the book is like, not only is it fun, but it's a strategy to achieve success. People love, it's powerful. And it also, it's because I'm not being Machiavellian, but you create a sense of obligation. And then when you don't do anything about it, it's even more powerful. You know, when you don't immediately cash it in, when you're not transactional, when they say, how can I ever repay you? And you say, you don't need to repay me. Just, you know, think of me well when you're out there in the world, you know, that's the whole sort of essence of the book. Yeah, I think that's powerful. Life's a long time. You initially had bootstrapped, but you mentioned that a couple of years ago, you took a big growth round. Can you talk to me about, you know, as a membership organization, why you chose to bootstrap first and also why you decided to take a big round and all of the stress and challenges that that brings, the expectations that that brings? Well, I bootstrapped. I didn't really have an option. I didn't feel like it was a particularly investable business. These businesses are very, very hard to get to even the scale that we're at. And they're even harder at our price points to get to, you know, 100 million in revenue or, or beyond, although I do think it's possible. So bootstrapping was necessity. I just wanted to make enough money that I didn't need to, uh, I couldn't get fired and I could support myself and my family. It became more successful than I anticipated by a lot. And then somebody came and said, we want to invest $25 million. And the market back then, so again, you know, it's like the funny joke of kind folks finish first in a 0% interest rate environment. The market back then was such that, you know, that $25 million did not go mostly to the company. It went partially to me and partially to the company because we were profitable. We didn't need the money necessarily. So that was an offer, as the mafia would say, too good to refuse. And it was also because I felt like the valuation was full, but not wildly excessive. You know, investors were in it, you know, around a hundred million. We were only doing 4 million in revenue then. So that was crazy, but we're going to do close to 20 now. And a five times multiple on that is not out of the realm of possibility. I think it's a function of the markets that were four times bigger than when they invested and were probably worth about the same as they paid. But that's, you know, I can't control valuation. I can only control what I can control. But that's why I decided to take the money was because it was a wealth creation event for me. I still retained control of the company. It was a great deal. And then the second part of your question is, you know, well, what are the drawbacks? And I can say it with fuller awareness two years down the road. Yeah, there are significant drawbacks. 
it heightened my ambition, which caused a diffusion of focus. We tried to do too many things, and that's part of what got us into trouble. We tried to be a community for more people than executives. We had the notion that we were going to start people pavilion and HR pavilion and legal pavilion, and we're going to create communities in all of these other areas where I had no particular subject matter knowledge or expertise. That was a mistake. That was an error. We should have just stayed focused on exactly who we had grown up serving because there were still so many more people that weren't members. And so the natural thing to do would have been to just keep focusing on the people that we were originally forced to serve. But again, you know, these are all growing pains and it's all lessons learned. And sometimes all of it is about getting back to the essence of why did you start this thing in the first place and making sure that you could stay true to it. That makes great sense. We're close to the end of our time, sadly for me, because I have a lot more questions that I would love to ask you. <laughs> but wondering, do you have time for a speed round? Yeah, of course. First subscription you ever had? Netflix, maybe. Cable. <laughs> <laughs> the electric bill. <laughs> yeah, Con totally. Edison. Um, favorite subscription that you're using today? Oh, that's interesting. I do like Strava. So Strava is a, it's just a fitness app that I record all my runs on and there's a community and you get likes from other people and there's a social component to it. But for me, it's just the easiest way to, it's just the easiest way to archive all of my exercise. So that's the first one that comes to mind. So that tells me a lot about you. So I'm an advisor to Strava and oh. um, we had, yeah, a huge fan and uh, had their chief revenue officer as a guest on the podcast last season. Oh, cool. So talking about similar topics, scaling. scaling they, can, um, uh, they can do a lot more with their analytics. Their analytics are pretty frustrating. But again, it's just the easiest way for me to just record without having a separate app for where I ran, what I did. Okay. Slight digression. Do you use it to stay connected to people, to compete but or support your fellow runners? Are you, I, are you a runner? Is that your... I was, but I felt like it was a little unhealthy and I felt like I was living for other people. Like there's a part of when you know that you're running on Strava that you, uh, you're afraid to go slow because you know that other people will see your time. And I've become slower in my old age. And now I, I log in less, to be honest, but I use it because I just want to... I like drawing shapes with my running. So I'm like, oh, look, that, was, that looks like a, some kind of stick figure. <laughs> Love that. That's funny. Do you have any pet subscriptions for your dogs? No. Favorite business book that you didn't write? There's two books. First, just the, the core business book is High Output Management by Andy Grove, which is sort of like one yep. of the Bibles of Silicon Valley. And then there's, it's a book, I think, by Jim Stewart. It's called Disney War. And it's about the history of the Eisner CEO tenure at Disney, at Walt Disney Corporation. And I just really love that book. Awesome. And a single tip for founders trying to scale in this pretty difficult environment? Stay lean and stay extremely focused on your core customer. And don't assume you need to build new products or services until really north of 20 million in revenue. Stay focused on your core customer. Keep doing what you're doing. If you're the kind of person that gets bored, find other things to divert you, but seek the boredom of repetition. Sam Jacobs, thank you so much for being a guest on Subscription Stories. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. That was Sam Jacobs, author of Kind Folks Finish First and founder of Pavilion. For more about Sam, Sam's book, and Pavilion, go to www.joinpavilion.com. And for more about Subscription Stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Sam, go to robbiekilmanbaxter.com slash podcast. Also, I have a favor to ask. If you like what you heard, please take a minute to go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. 
Mention Sam and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews are how listeners find our podcast, and we appreciate each one. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.